Well, this is actually message number eight in our series that we're calling Thrones. We're asking ourselves the question, who is on the throne of your hearts? And uh, specifically in our time together today, we want to talk about the power of perspective uh, from Judges chapter 13. And so we want to welcome everyone uh, at all our Valley Christian Church campuses and just invite you to go ahead and open up your app and you can follow along, fill in the blanks there, and you'll have those notes to take with you and they'll be on your phone uh, that you can look back on uh, in the future, and, and we're going to be looking at over the next, this is the first in three messages, kind of I guess you'd say a micro-series in this bigger series, uh, Thrones uh, on the Book of Judges. We're going to be looking at the life of Samson. He's the next character up in the Book of Judges, and let me just say this, this is not your Sunday school Samson. Uh, we're going to be <laughs> taking three weeks and really looking at him, and uh, you may be surprised if all you've ever heard about from Samson was something in Sunday school at a kid's level. There's a whole lot more to the story. He was a real womanizer, had all kinds of uh, issues, anger issues. Almost everything that he did, great victory, was out of anger and wrath, uh, with the exception of the last uh, thing that he did in his life. And so uh, he's a judge, though. He's uh, one that God raised up and really in a miraculous way we're going to look at in our time together today. Uh, but before we do that, let me give you a quick review of where we've been in this series, this cycle that we've seen over and over again uh, in the book of Judges, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of God. Uh, first, they rebel against God, and then there's retribution that comes. God's like, okay, if you want to serve other idols and, and worship other idols, then have at it. I'm going to, you know, I, I'm just going to let that happen, and you're not going to like what the consequences are that are the repercussions of your own decisions. And so there's retribution. And then they turn back. So many times they turn back to God and, and they repent and they realize that they're in the wrong. And, and so God then rescues them. He sends a rescuer, a redeemer. And what the Old Testament book we're in, Judges calls him a judge. And so we've learned not to think in terms of, uh, you know, some sort of governmental official, legal official with a robe and a gavel, but a judge is just that, is a rescuer, a, a, a redeemer, and, and then we find the cycle goes again. God rescues him, redeems him, overthrows the nation that's, that's uh, uh, oppressing them. And then this cycle just goes on and on and on and on. And that's exactly where we are again in Judges uh, chapter 13, this cycle continuing over and over. And Samson's probably the most well-known uh, of the judges, and, and that's why there's a good bit about him in the book of Judges, and we're going to take three weeks to talk about it. In fact, in Judges 13, where we're at today, uh, is really about the circumstances before he was even born. It was the circumstances around his birth and his conception and his mother's uh, pregnancy with him. Uh, and what we're going to find, I think, is the same thing we found in weeks past with this cycle, that even when God brings a rescuer, a judge, they're not perfect people. Far from it. They're, they're very imperfect heroes. And uh, I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of hope. Because God is not looking for uh, perfect people uh, in order to use them. Uh, in fact, God doesn't love uh, the lovely. He makes lovely those he loves. God doesn't save the strong. He makes strong those that he saves. God doesn't choose the righteous. He makes righteous those that he chooses. And so that just gives me a whole lot of hope uh, in my relationship with, with Christ and, and my spiritual walk, and I hope that it does with you as well. 
And one of the things that, that uh, I, I keep thinking about uh, as we look at this cycle over and over in week number eight now uh, in, in this series is just how much God, I think sometimes from God's perspective, he values things that we don't necessarily value. And, uh, and he puts an importance on things that we don't necessarily put a real importance on. And, and one of the things I would say in looking at the book of Judges, kind of the big picture, is this. You know, the greatest ability is really dependability. The greatest ability is being dependable. And I think in our culture, we don't, we don't value just being there, just being dependable, that, that we're going to be where we said we're going to be. We're going to do what it is that we said we're going to do. But there's so much that God can do in our lives and through our lives through just being dependable. And this certainly shows the people of God not being dependable. And I think God's just looking for people that are dependable, and he'll change our world. He, he did it then, and he wants to do it today as well. And so as we're looking in Judges chapter 13, the power of perspective, there's really three questions, I think, that, that we, we're, we're asked in this passage, in this chapter, in Judges chapter 13. And the first question is this, whose eyes matter most? Whose eyes really matter the most? Let me explain that question because this is an important question all throughout the book of Judges and I thought this would be the right time in this chapter to kind of jump into it a little bit. In Judges chapter 13, verse 1, the first verse uh, in the chapter that we're looking at today, it says, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now let me just unpack this for a minute. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is a verse that's repeated, this phrase, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is repeated over and over and over again numerous times throughout the book of Numbers. This is that cycle that we see over and over again. Also, one thing that I want to point out, not only is this one time here in Judges chapter 13, but also it says he delivered them because they did evil in his sight. He delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. That number 40 is pretty significant. Uh, I remember in Bible college, I had to take a class called biblical numerology, uh, and you literally had to study all the significance of the numbers all throughout the Bible. Uh, in fact, the class was biblical typology and symbolism, but a whole part about uh, the numbers in the Bible, and a very fascinating study. It's a whole perspective uh, of understanding and reading the Bible. But, but the number 40 is a literal number, but it also, the number 40 has to do with totality, with, uh, uh, with completion, uh, with fullness, the number 40. If you remember, the children of Israel were in the desert for 40 years. Jesus was led into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. That number 40, you see it popping up over and over. So it's, it's a totality. So God hands them over to the Philistines. Now the Philistines are the most advanced civilization at the time, and they were incredibly advanced, and they were some bad folks. They had all kinds of technological advances for the time. Their military was just no one even close to them. And they were like the wicked of the absolute wicked. Human sacrifices, all kinds of stuff like that. These were nasty, nasty people, the Philistines. And God delivered them into the hands of the Philistines. But what I want to point out even more so in this first verse is this idea that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
Because here's the thing, also in Judges, there's another phrase that's repeated. In fact, we'll just jump ahead for a minute. In Judges chapter 17, verse 6, it said, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So we find these two kind of contrasts. Israel did what was evil in the eyes of God, and at the same time, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So that begs the question, whose eyes matter most? Whose perspective matters the most? This verse also, this phrase is repeated all throughout the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Kind of sounds like, to me, the United States of America today. Just, just if it feels good, do it. Whatever you want to do. You know, truth, what is truth? There are no absolutes. There's no truth. It's whatever you feel. If it's just okay. Do what's right in your own eyes. But see... What's right in our own eyes isn't what matters most. It's what's right in the eyes of God or what's evil in the eyes of God. This reveals really, uh, I mean, when you think about it, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. as, As nice as that sounds on the surface, think about the implications of that in any other area of life. Let me give you an example. The Nazis did what was right in their own eyes. They thought they were helping the world in the Holocaust. And the German people as a nation went along with it. And we would say, well, that's horrendous, that's terrible. Yeah, but they were doing what was right in their own eyes. Not what was right in the eyes of God. It was evil in the eyes of God. But it was right in their own eyes. This this right here is what trips humanity up. This idea, just if you think it's right, it's okay. And we're we're, we're forced to... Ask the question, whose eyes matter most? See, as we contrast, Israel did what was evil in the Lord's eyes with they did what's right in their own eyes, there's two things about sin I think are important for us to understand from uh, the whole book of Judges, specifically in this first verse in Judges chapter 13, verse 1. Two truths about sin. The first is this, what is the definition of sin? The definition, of sin. the definition of sin is not what I think is wrong. That's not the definition of sin. In other words, you might think something's wrong that I don't think is wrong, so it's sin for you, but it's not sin for me. That's not the definition of sin. What is the definition of sin? Sin consists of violating God's will. Violating God's will. See, here's the thing. I don't think most people sin consciously. I don't think most people like, I know this is wrong, I'm going to do it anyway. Some do, but I think a majority of people, that's not the perspective of all. It's, I feel like it's right. In my own eyes, it's right. In my heart, I feel like it's right. And so we define sin, but that's not what sin really is. God defines sin as violating his will, what he says is right. Not what Greg says is right, not, not, not what I feel in my heart is true. All those things can be completely wrong. In fact, the Bible tells us the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can trust it? So so my heart cannot determine what's right or wrong. Only God can do that. So there's the definition of sin is sin consists of violating God's will. But then there's something else about sin that's really important is we're asking ourselves the question, whose eyes matter most? And that is the deception of sin. There is deceitfulness in sin itself. 
There, there is a deceptive ingredient, an agent, an aspect to sin. So that sin, when we sin, we always can justify why we did what we did. We always rationalize why it is that we violated God's will. We always have some sort of explanation or excuse why we did what we did when God says it's wrong and we're like, no, it's right for me. It's okay for me to do this. It's okay for me to say this. It's okay for me to act this way. Sin can be anything, even good things, that take priority over Christ being first in our life. In other words, sin is anything or anyone that's seated on the throne of our heart. That's sin. And we're always finding ways to rationalize sin. Like, for instance, materialism. Oh, I just got to have that. I just got to have it. You know, my life will be complete if I just had, if I just had more money, everything would be fine. No, you'll still be the same person you are right now. Or we rationalize worry. What is worry? It's just fear in a different dress. And we rationalize these things. Like, and, and when it really comes down to it, I do not trust God. That's what worry is. I refuse to believe that God is really good. He's evil, he's wrong, he's bad, and he's going to let bad things happen to me. And we put ourselves on the throne of our heart instead of God. And this leads us, these, these two ideas about sin, the true definition of sin and the true idea of the deceitfulness of sin should lead us to constantly taking an inside look through Scripture and reading and also having accountable relationships around us that can help us to like, Greg, what are you doing? Don't, don't you know what God says about this? It's not what you feel about this. What, Greg, look at what you're doing. Where do you find that anywhere in the Bible for what you're doing? I, I know you have your reason, but, but where in God's word does it say that's okay? Because my Bible says that's not okay with God. That's wrong. That's sin. And the thing about sin is this. It always causes us much more destruction than we ever realize on the front end. Always does. Because of that deceitful nature in it. it it's not a big deal. This, this, this is okay. You know what? You deserve this, Greg. You have a right to this. You got a right to feel that way. And then it catches us. And it keeps us longer than we want to stay. Whose eyes matter most? Here's the second question that, that we come across, I believe, in Judges chapter 13. Is the impossible possible? <laughs> Is the impossible really possible? And, and here we're introduced in verse 2 in Judges chapter 13 to Samson's mother and father. Let's look at it. Judges chapter 2, Judges 13 verse 2. It says, a certain man named Zorah, named Monoah, uh, of Zorah, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, so he's from the tribe of Dan, had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. Now, Samson's mother's name is never mentioned anywhere in here, and that's kind of sad. I kind of wonder what her name was. Uh, but anyway, it goes on and it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to her. Now, remember, we talked about who the angel of the Lord is. This is what's called a, a, a theophany or Christophany. Uh, and it's really Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. In John chapter 1 in the gospel, it says that he was, with, he was God and he was with God in the beginning. 
It's not the first time, and we're going to find very clearly in this story, in Judges chapter 13, that this was actually God. This was Jesus Christ himself. And the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. This is a miraculous birth that's really going to happen. Not like the virgin birth, but, but literally what the Bible talks about is God is going to open the womb of Samson's mother, who was unable to bear children at the time. And says, you're going, to give, you're going to become pregnant and you're going to give birth to a son. So think about this. He's not even yet conceived. This is very important as we move forward. Look at what it says. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. Before, she's even, before Samson's mother even conceives, the angel of the Lord appears to her and says, this is the plan that God has for your child. You're going to have a child. And, and begins to say, and while you're actually even carrying the child, it's important what you don't do and stay away from because it will affect that living person inside of you. And it'll affect God's plan for that person inside of you, for your son. It says, so now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. And it goes on and says, and you will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite. I'll explain that in just a minute, what a Nazarite is. Dedicated to God from the womb. What a statement right there about the importance of human life. Dedicated to God from conception, from that moment. Nine months before the birth even comes. And he will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So what's going on here? Before even conception, the angel tells Samson's mother, this is God's plan. And he says three things. He's gonna, uh, even during the pregnancy, uh, she can take no fruit of the vine. That not only means wine, but it also means grape juice. There are really only three things to drink back then. Water, milk, and wine or grape juice. That was it. Didn't have Coca-Cola, much to my chagrin. You know, uh, uh, those folks never got to have a little Coke and a smile. But uh, no fruit of the vine. And then says, once they're born, that, that a razor cannot touch their head. Don't, don't let him cut his hair. And also, can't touch anything dead. This was, this was the Nazarite vow that we find in Numbers chapter 6. You can read up on it on your own. Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And they had those first five books of the Bible at this time. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and this was a Nazarite vow. And the whole idea, the purpose behind a Nazarite vow was to ask God's special blessing or help in a crucial or critical time. And it was for a determined period of time. It wasn't, there's no record of anyone taking a Nazarite vow for their whole entire lifetime, much less in utero. But God says about this child named Samson, from the moment of conception till his death, he's supposed to keep this vow. Now, it's pretty cool. What's, what's the symbolism here? What's it talking about? Well, first of all, not cutting the hair or drinking wine gives the idea of, that they're in training. It's like an athlete who's in training. I, I'm not going to do anything. And, and that time, hair was a glory. It was, it was a, a, a hair even in a man. It was kind of the glory of a man. Like, wow. When you see a guy with a full head of hair. 
Anyway, uh, so, uh, and, and not drinking any wine, of course, is like staying away from it because I'm in training. And then what does it say? Also, not touching anything dead. This was, from the Nazarite vow, adopted from the ceremonial laws of purity for priests. Priest in the Old Testament wasn't allowed to touch anything dead. So in other words, not going to cut my hair, not going to drink any grape juice or wine, and I'm not going to touch anything dead. There was this outward appearance and symbol to everyone that would meet this man, Samson, he's dedicated to God in a big way. He's set apart for God's purposes in a huge way. In other words, this vow, this Nazarite vow was saying, I'm living before the presence of God every single day. Let me ask you a question. Are you living before the presence of God every single day? And is it so tangible that people can actually spend a little bit of time with you and they can tell that you're living before the presence of God every moment of the day? It may not be because of your long hair. It may not be because you don't touch anything dead. I haven't in my lifetime and I'm not planning on it. But it's the way that we conduct ourselves, the things that we do say, the things that we don't say, the things that we do participate in, the things that we don't participate in. Can people just spend a little bit of time with you and, and all of a sudden they start asking, are you, are you a Christian? Is there any difference at all in our life because of our faith in God? Samson joins really a pretty elite list when you think about it. There are actually five men uh, in the Bible, best that I could figure, five men in the Bible that, that really were uh, miraculous births. Not like the virgin birth. There was only one of those, Mary. But first of all, Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. After Abraham and Sarah could not have any children, he was the son of promise. Samson that we're looking at now was a son of strength. Samuel was born to a woman that could not bear children. He was a son of prophecy. John the Baptist was born to Elizabeth in her old age as well. And he was a son of preparation. And then finally Mary gave birth to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So all of these are actually foreshadowing of the ultimate, the Son of God who would come by the most miraculous one-time event in human history, a virgin would give birth. Samson flawed and failed as much as he just made so many mistakes. He still kind of points to the ultimate strong Son of God who would come. Is the impossible possible? Absolutely. Just as the angel would say to Mary when he announced to her that she would be pregnant with the Son of God, with God, all things are possible. And for Samson's mother and his father named Manoah, all things are possible as well. And for you too, and for me too, as we walk with Jesus Christ. That brings us to the third question here in Judges chapter 13. The first one, whose eyes matter most? We're talking about the power of perspective. Is the impossible possible? And then the third question, what's better than rules? 
Is there anything that's really better than rules and regulations and, and uh, more and more information? What's, what's better than rules? Let's look at verse 8 in Judges chapter 13. Because remember, the angel of the Lord just appeared to Samson's mother. In Judges, Judges chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Then Manoah prayed to the Lord after Samson's mother, uh, Manoah's wife, told him about the angelic visit. This is his response. Uh, Pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. He's like, I, I, I trust what my wife said, but I'd really like a little more information about this whole parenthood thing. Uh, so could that angel just show up one more time? I'm a little intimidated, not sure I'm going to be able to do everything you want me to do. Could the angel just show up one more time? And what's really remarkable about it is this, he does. The angel comes again, this angel of the Lord. But this time the visit's a little bit different. The angel appears to Manoah's wife, uh, and, and then uh, Manoah prays again that the angel would come, and he does come again. And, and this time, though, uh, he actually says the exact same thing to Manoah that he said to Manoah's wife. Doesn't give any more examples, no more information whatsoever. And then look at this in verse 17 of Judges 13. It says, Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name so that we may honor you when, you when your word comes true? And he replied, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Giving us a hint as to who he's actually speaking to. He says, What is your name? Now, Understand a little bit of culture that's going on uh, behind the scenes here will help us to understand what's happening here. When Manoah says, what is your name that we may honor you when your word comes true? This is what is called, is covenantal language. In other words, he's like, okay, I recognize like you're powerful and all, and, and I really want to, I want to, I want you to keep your promise to me. And I want to know for sure that I can, I can count on you and I can trust you. So tell me what your name is. And, and by giving me your name, it's like an exchange is going to take place. And in just a minute, he says, let me make you a meal. And the angel of the Lord says, I'm not eating what you're selling. I'm not eating what you're preparing. Because that was also a sign of making a covenant in the Old Testament. And so Manoah is literally saying, I don't really trust you fully until you show me a little something else. And the angel replies, why are you asking my name? And I love this. It is beyond understanding. In essence, the angel says, Manoah, you don't even realize who you're talking to. You think I'm an angel. And you think that's a big deal? You don't know who it is that you're speaking to. Kind of reminds me in the New Testament of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. I was having a conversation with Jesus about water, living water. And he says to her, if you knew who it was you were speaking to, she didn't realize either. My name is beyond understanding. In essence... What the angel is saying here, the angel of the Lord, and we're going to see it really gets cool in a minute, and he pretty much reveals who he really is. He's saying, you need to know my character 
more than you need more information. Manoah, you need to know who I am more than you need instructions. Because if you know who I am, there's not enough information in the world that will help you as much as a relationship with me. So many Christians I know, they just want more information and they really, really are missing out. They just want more head knowledge and they're missing out because what God wants is to give us himself, not some sort of download of a PDF. If God wanted to do that, he would have done it. But what did he do? He sent his son. He sent himself. You need to know my character, in essence, is what the angel is saying, more than you need information. All the information in the world will not be able to give you all the directions that you need to raise this son. I'm giving you name Samson. Only a deep understanding of who I am can give you the guidance that you need. And you know, the same is true for you and for me today as well. We think we need rules. We think we need instructions. We think we need some sort of divine navigation system to make it through every single day. But God knows what we really need is to know him. He hadn't given us a guidebook, really. I mean, the, the scripture, the Bible, as important as that is, he didn't send us a book. He sent us his son. And that's how we get to know him, is through his word, but also through prayer, also through worship. And one of the greatest things we're going to see over the next couple weeks, one of the greatest ways that we get to know God, watch this now, is that thing that we don't like to talk a lot about, obedience. There is nothing in this world that will help us to know who God is in a greater way than obeying him. When we obey him, we realize he really did have our best interest after all. When we obey him, we find his plan and his purposes coming alive, unfolding and blossoming in our lives. When we obey him, not when we doubt him, not when we fear him, not when we question him, but when we actually do what it is he's told us to do when we obey him. And then Manoah gets this idea, well, maybe I'll, still he's not really listening. And in verse 19, he's like, well, how about a meal? Let's try a meal. So look at what it says. Then Manoah took a young goat together with a grain offering and sacrificed it on the rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. So he's like, okay, I'm going to make this meal and I'm going to, I'm going to give it to this angel. And then it goes on and it says, as the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. All of a sudden, this angel, as the flame goes up, the angel goes whoosh, and flies up in the flame back to heaven. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. Watch this. It goes on. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized it was the angel of the Lord. This wasn't just an angel. This was the angel of the Lord. And he explains what it is. It goes on and says, we are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. 
Not an angel. God himself. Jesus. And he's afraid that he's going to die. Then he goes on and says, But his wife answered, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would have not accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from your hands, nor shown us all the things, or now told us this. She's like, Manoah, I really think it's going to be okay. This is why I really wish I knew her name, because Manoah just seems like a gutless coward, but Samson's mom seems to be the one with real faith here. And she's like, you know what? If he was going to kill us, we'd already be dead. And God would be a liar. But let's just see what's going to happen. And of course, what happened? She became pregnant. And she kept that vow through her pregnancy. And they raised their son to continue to be faithful to that vow. That Nazarite vow. Samson was born at the end, in verses 24 and 25 of Judges chapter 13, and he soon experienced the blessings and the anointing of the Spirit of God upon his life because he obeyed God and because his parents obeyed God as well. See, it's all about perspective. It's all about perspective. The power of perspective. And it's not about my perspective or your perspective. It's about God's perspective. That's what we learn here in Judges chapter 13. Who's, when we ask ourselves the question, who I, whose eyes matter most? God's. How things appear through his eyes. Is the impossible possible? Yes, with God all things are possible. What's better than rules? You know what's better than A relationship with the living God with Jesus Christ. It's just like a parent when, when raising a child, a good parents should do this anyway. The younger that the child is, we have very limited understanding, there are a lot of rules. But as that child grows, the rules begin to be less and it's more about the relationship. It's through keeping the rules in my household as my children have grown up that our three daughters, my, my wife Susie and I, our three daughters have gotten to know us now that they're in their teens and 20s There's not a whole lot of rules because they know us. Less and less rules, more and more relationship. In fact, just recently, we're getting ready in a few weeks to take all three of our daughters to college. Our youngest will be a freshman at Liberty University. They've all chosen to go there, and and we sat down. We had a little family meeting. We do this from time to time, a little uh, get-together, and we talk about some things, and and I made a statement to our daughter, Sophia. I said, you know, uh, honey, you graduated from high school now. You're about to be a freshman in college, and, uh, you know, now you've reached that point where we're, we're friends, and she said, what? I said, yeah, you know, it's not like I'm just the authority in your life. There's a whole lot less rules and all that, and now we're friends. She's like, yes, I made it. Yes, yes, I made it. I made it. Friendship. And so the rest of our lives, we're going to be friends. I I, I don't want to be the authority in our life forever. That time's coming to close real quick, a few weeks. Now I'm an advisor when asked. Now, now I give input when asked. We're friends. Jesus put it this way to his disciples. No longer do I call you as servants. I call you friends. 
because a servant doesn't know what his master's about. But I'm showing you all things. Relationship. Relationship is so much better than rules. How do we have a relationship? We have to allow God to transform us. That's where, to, to, to change our perspective. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, so our perspective becomes more like him. It tells us, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Stop thinking the way the world thinks. That's the wrong perspective. But be transformed. It's the Greek word metamorphosis, like a caterpillar just changed into a butterfly. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Watch this now. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When we allow the Holy Spirit to transform our perspective so that it's not, this is what seems right to Greg, but that I have the understanding in my mind, I've allowed the Holy Spirit, and he's continuing to transform my mind. This is God's perspective on this. That's the right perspective. When I can see, the way, uh, see things the way God wants me to see them, the way he sees them, that's the right perspective. That's the powerful, that is the promising perspective. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, it puts it this way, but we have the mind of Christ. And notice, we, it's plural. Not one per- no one person has the mind of Christ. Together. That's why getting together like this is so important. That's why sharing your life and developing deep, meaningful friendships with other Christians, they can say, Greg, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Together we have the mind of Christ. We all need those accountable relationships that can kind of call us out when we're going the wrong way, when we're going in a direction that seems right to us. But God says, that's evil in my sight. That's not right at all. And so I, I want to end the, this message on the power of perspective from Judges chapter 13. And I couldn't help but remember this old, uh, old hymn that we used to sing in the Baptist church when, when I was just a little kid, before I was even five years old, maybe six. And I think it's really the whole key here to this what's better than rules is relationship. And I was reminded of this hymn that says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Our relationship with Jesus Christ goes so much deeper when we obey him, when we just follow through with what he has already said, and we get to know him so much better same way my children have gotten to know me through the years by obeying me when they were really little. Now we have this wonderful friendship, this wonderful relationship, and they know daddy has my best interest in heart. Daddy may not always tell me what I want to hear, but I can trust daddy. I can trust mommy. It's the same way with our heavenly father. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Would you bow your heads with me right now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, these three questions in in Judges chapter 13 are, are really questions that I think we find ourselves asking all the time. Whose eyes matter most? Whose perspective matters the most? 
And Father, we pray that you would give us your eyes. Lord, that we would that we would value what you say, your perspective, your opinion above even our own, above whatever the majority might say because the majority can be completely wrong. Father, help us to see things, situations and circumstances from your perspective. Lord, we ask for courage to believe by faith that the impossible is truly possible when we obey you just like Samson's mother and father obeyed you. And Father, we recognize today, maybe some of us for the first time, that better than following rules, that you want a relationship with us. If you wanted to just download a PDF, you would have done it, but you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to show us who you really are, to die a sacrificial death in our place, and to rise again from the dead so that we can be confident that our sins have been paid for in full and he demonstrated how much you love us by his sacrifice and his love. So Father, I pray for every single person in the hearing of my voice today that if they've not yet placed their faith in your son Jesus Christ as their savior, that today would be that day of salvation and that we would trust and obey knowing there's no other way to truly be happy in this new relationship with Jesus Christ than to trust and obey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.